Hi, coaches. Welcome to Coaches on the Rise, the podcast for all coaches of all sports. I'm your host, Celia Slater. And today we're going to venture into this topic of mental health issues with college student athletes or really any student athletes. It's a big time issue right now as more and more college coaches are finding themselves in positions where they have to manage um, a student athlete that is struggling with a mental health issue. And not only do they have to support that athlete, they have to figure out a way to manage all the other athletes around that athlete on their team. A lot of coaches don't feel, you know, trained um, and prepared to handle some of these situations. And when the schools are also in a situation where they're kind of CYA, um, trying to take care of themselves, it's really an interesting issue that comes up between coaches, the institution, the administration, and the student athlete. Everyone is trying to figure out the best way to handle this. So today I talk with Brian Hainline, and Brian is the chief medical officer at the Sports Science Institute. He is senior VP at the NCAA. And Brian, it was very interesting because he shares some of the resources that they have that I'm sure a lot of coaches and administrators may not even know that the NCAA has for them. All those resources will be in our show notes. So let's get to the conversation. Please enjoy. Thank you. everyone. Welcome to Coaches on the Rise podcast. Before we get into our show, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about our event that we're running out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, May 28th through the 31st called Camp Elevate for Coaches on the Rise. It is a very unique personal and professional development program for all coaches of all sports. I guarantee you when you leave camp, it'll rejuvenate you It'll will send you away with a lot of great ideas and you'll meet some really, really cool coaches in the process. So if you're interested, we'd really love for you to take a, a peek at truenorthsports.net and hope you'll join us in Colorado Springs this coming May. Now on to the show. Hi everybody. Today I have the wonderful opportunity to visit with Brian Hainline. He is the senior VP at the NCA for the Sports Science Institute. He's also chief medical officer at the NCAA. Brian, thank you for being here with me today. I really do appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, you know, we uh, we work with coaches of all sports. Um, um, and some people who listen to our podcast are also club. I mean, all the different levels. Uh, would you mind just sharing a little bit about your background and how you wound up being where you are at the NCA now? Well, I think a big reason is because I love sport <laughs> so much. So I'm a multi-sport athlete and then ultimately specialized in tennis and was a student athlete at Notre Dame. Mm. I played number one uh, for their team my senior year and continue to compete when I can. So that's the sport part of it. And then my training in medicine, I'm a neurologist, but early on in my career, I became very interested in the neurological aspects of sport. So I was a ringside doc in boxing mm -hmm. and uh, served on the uh, United States Olympic Committee Sports Medicine Committee. And then because of my affiliation with tennis and some other things, I actually became chief medical officer for the U.S. Open Tennis Championships and did that for over 16 years. And so that was really looking at all aspects of sports injuries, but we also really refined what we were doing in terms of 
overuse injuries, musculoskeletal injuries, the mind-body connection. So all of that had a tie with neurology. And then this job opened up at the NCAA, and it just seemed like a wonderful opportunity. A good next step for you, right? It's like, oh, this is like my next step. I see it very clearly. Well, we, um, you know, the coaches are dealing with a lot of different mental health issues on their teams. Um, and, And I know that's a big topic for you and the NCAA and trying to figure out ways to support the coaches, support the athletes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what are some of the the different pro- programs or what you all are trying to build to help support coaches and athletes with that? Well, sure. So, so first, I, I think it's important just to recognize that we develop nine strategic priorities. And the Board of Governors, the most powerful committee of the NCAA, they endorse these nine priorities as the strategic priorities of health and safety for the whole association. And so they include things like concussion and mental health and overuse injuries and sleep and uh, sexual violence and drug and alcohol use and how we administer sport, uh, nutrition, and and making data-driven decisions. But the Student Athlete Advisory Committee members, so from Division I, Division II, and Division III, the first week I was on the job in January 2013, they all independently said the following to me. They said, Dr. Hainla, we get concussion. Please make mental health your priority. Hmm. Interesting. And it's really becoming increasingly recognized that we've been paying too much attention to so-called physical health and not to mental health. And, and, and going back to our strategic priorities, you actually see that mental health intersects with every one of them. So concussion, that's a big one. That's the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. But certain mental health disorders can predispose you to concussion and can prolong concussion recovery. Mm -hmm. So then you can look at doping and substance use. Substance use disorders, if you just treat them in a vacuum and don't address the underlying mental health condition, you won't be successful. Mm -hmm. Sexual violence. We know with certainty that sexual violence occurs commonly for athletes, unfortunately, and that athletes who have been victims of sexual violence, they have a much higher increased risk of developing depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and all of that negatively impacts their performance as well as their well-being. You can look at sleep. If you're sleep deprived, you not only have an increased incidence of suicidal thoughts, You also have an increased incidence of developing depression and anxiety. And sleep deprivation in and of itself, which is hugely connected with mental health, predicts developing a musculoskeletal injury more than overtraining does. It's not, that's so interesting. Mental health, you can't separate from physical health, and I'll, I'll give you one really concrete example. If you have a perfectly biomechanically reconstructed anterior cruciate ligament from a previous tear of the ACL. So everything looks perfect surgically. If you develop depression postoperatively, the chance of that ACL repair remaining functional is statistically significantly decreased relative to if you do not develop clinical depression postoperatively. So what has happened is we artificially separated the mind and body but the body's physiology 
doesn't differentiate physical from mental because it's all the same. Uh, mm -hmm. Our physiology, if I'm afraid, my heart's beating faster before I'm even consciously aware that I'm afraid. So it's been a real growth of knowledge in how mental health really affects athletes and how athletics may even predispose to certain mental health symptoms and disorders and how we really need to address this at a monumental level. And, and so we've done it at the NCAA, but I can also tell you that the International Olympic Committee just held its first ever consensus meeting on mental health and elite athletes in November 2018. So the world is kind of finally really awakening to the fact that mental health is a key determinant of athletic success and well-being. Mm -hmm. So when you think about what are some of the, for the NCAA coaches that are listening, um, what, what are some of the resources that you all have for them, like support that, that they could reach out and actually use? So one resource, it's a book called Mind, Body, and Sport. Mm -hmm. It's free on our website. You can download the PDF or get a hard copy. And our website is ncaa.org forward slash SSI. Mm -hmm. And then we created, with the help of 25 of the leading mental health, medical and sports medicine organizations in the country, a mental health best practices document, also on our website. So we have widely distributed that, distributed that to the entire membership, mm -hmm. and it's also freely available on our website. And that document really stresses four things for coaches. One is, that the only people who should be managing or treating athletes with mental health disorders are licensed mental health providers. And what coaches may not realize is that a large number of sports psychologists are actually not licensed mental health providers. They're coaches, mm -hmm. they're kinesiologists. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. The second is that every single coach, and this is the second point of emphasis in the best practices document, should be aware of how to refer his or her athlete to a mental health provider because often the athlete will first speak to the coach. So be aware of your team and how you can make that referral. And the other thing is every coach should understand how to manage an athlete who may be suicidal or acutely psychotic. Just like every coach should be certified in CPR and automatic external defibrillation placement, every coach should understand how to manage a crisis. Not treat, but manage a crisis. Mm -hmm. The third thing in the document is we talk about screening. So coaches really don't need to get involved in screening, but to be aware that screening tools are being developed. The fourth part of the document is all about coaches. It's how do we create an environment that supports mental resiliency, mental well-being, and that fosters an environment where seeking help for a mental health symptom or disorder is really allowed and actually encouraged. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we talk about the importance of the coach as really the person who's really creating the environment or creating a stigma against mental health. 
So that's the essence of the best practices document. But because we focused on the coaches, we then created a 10-minute module just for coaches. And that module, also on the website, is just about how coaches can understand, recognize, and manage mental health symptoms and disorders. We don't make them experts, but once you understand that it's out there and that athletes may manifest in a certain way and your antenna's up, then you really understand not only how to listen to the athlete, but to make certain that he or she gets the proper care that they need. And ultimately, our goal is very clear. We want mental health services to be as accessible as services for an ankle sprain. Mm-hmm. Well, that would make sense. And I really am, I find it fascinating, you know, you're talking about the whole mind, body, the, the sleep, and like how it's all interconnected. And it's very refreshing to hear someone at your level talking about that because, you know, I definitely have always believed in the mind, body, and the, that particular part of the connection. I think you know, going back to the coaches managing this situation, one of the things that I'm hearing from the coaches is that it's not just the athletes that these anxiety and depression is on the increase, it's the student body at large. And so the counseling departments are like overwhelmed with people lining up that need counseling. And so it becomes, and that almost seems like the best resource is to go to the campus counseling center to get that first step. But if it's a two week wait or a three, you know, like sometimes it's just really hard for the coaches to get them in. And then the HIPAA laws, um, my understanding is like they really can't tell their parents that they're struggling and maybe have access to their parents' um, health insurance, you know, to get them into a different therapist in town. And I, and I understand HIPAA is protecting the, the student-athletes' rights as well, and maybe their parents are causing some of the mental health issues, you know. You know, do you hear that a lot? Like there's, like, there's a really huge backup in the statistics. I mean, maybe you know the statistics, but what is it, one in every however many kids are on some kind of depression or anxiety drugs right now? So it, it's about 20% mm. um, conservatively. So we know a few things. One is that, and this is just extrapolating, you know, very broadly speaking, that student athletes are less prone to develop depression and anxiety than students, and I'm talking about college students, students who are not athletes. Mm. Which kind of makes sense because when you're an athlete, you're goal-driven, you have a supportive team and Mm -hmm, network. mm -hmm. You learn how to fall and, and, and even to fail and then pick yourself up. So these are all really, really protective elements. But that being said, there are certain risks inherent in sport. Mm -hmm. So the most important thing a coach can do is at the very beginning of the season is to understand that he or she is not working in a vacuum. So at the college level, what we stress is that the coach, the athletic director, the athletics healthcare administrator, the team physician, the athletic trainer, and all of the identified licensed mental health providers meet at the front end of the season with the athletes. And they make it very clear that these are the steps we take for routine referrals, Mm -hmm. and these are the steps we take for emergency referrals. So we actually uh, polled our membership. We're always trying to find data, how we can improve, and so forth. And so for emergencies, 
the average wait time is actually one to two days. So mm -hmm. one could argue that's too long, but mm -hmm. but um, but just, we didn't break down with you know with emergencies versus say being acutely suicidal. Mm -hmm. And then for routine referrals, uh, the average wait is about one week, extending to two weeks in some of the uh, D2 and D3 schools. Mm -hmm. The other thing we found is that, you know, you don't have to have licensed sports psychologists in athletics. So it's just how do you collaborate? But if you're working with people outside of athletics, so mental health cultural relevancy is always really important. So if I'm African-American or if I'm gay or transgender um, or if I'm an athlete, I want someone who is sensitive to the fact that that's part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And we found that many campus licensed mental health care providers weren't really aware of the unique concerns that athletes had. And so part of our outreach was also to make certain that the licensed mental health providers on campus are aware that athletes may have different mm -hmm. drivers of mental health issues than non-athletes. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, it's just, the thing that I wonder about in, is like the causes of the increases of the anxiety and the depression, or was it just always there and we never really talked about it, but what, what are you all finding might be some of the causes of the increase? So it's a very interesting question. So this Z generation, mm -hmm. uh, which is much more open to uh, social change, they are also much more open to uh, discussing their feelings. So you compare that to when I was an athlete, so I, I was uh, an athlete in college from 1974 to 78. If you had a mental health problem, you basically didn't talk about it. You know, uh, athletes were considered this more invincible group of individuals and, and they were very tough-minded. And, and if you talked about feeling depressed or anxious, you were considered weak. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the answer was, you know, just suck it up, so to speak. And, and so, and that really was culturally how things were. But also you look at our country, the United States of America. And I'll give you one very concrete example of where mental health is relative to other issues. So a few years ago, the Secretary of the Army was an openly gay man. An impossible thought 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe it would be possible for someone in a high-level position in this country today to say, well, I suffer with bipolar. I've had three treatments of electroconvulsive therapy. I'm on a stable dose of lithium. I'm ready to serve. Mm -hmm. So mental health is still a bit in the closet. And what we're actually hoping, we meaning at the NCAA level, is that athletics as a subculture is going to be one of the real pivotal movements to awaken our country to the fact that mental health concerns are real and they should be managed and there should be plenty of access for mental health symptoms and disorders management. So, you know, it, it, it is interesting. And then, you know, people talk about, well, you know, kids these days, all they do is they don't know how to really express their feelings one-on-one, -on -one, it's always through a text message or Facebook or Instagram. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure we, we don't actually know the facts, mm -hmm. if that has been a contributing factor. And 
The other is that medications are very quickly utilized. And so that can prevent tragedies on the one hand, but if they're too quickly utilized, then you don't really learn how to engage with your feelings and problem solve. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons why mental health disorders and symptoms may be on the rise. I, I don't think scientists can pinpoint exactly, but I think most would agree with what I just said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in, in along with that, is it true that there is an increase in the suicide rates? Like that, are, like suicide is on the increase over the last few years. So or? suicide, so death by suicide has uh, been increasing, and it's a you know it's a leading cause of death in, in our emerging adults. Mm -hmm. um, the why of that is not clear. Mm -hmm. We had a uh, licensed um, therapist do a talk for our, one of our webinars for a course we were teaching to coaches and. And it was interesting to hear her say like that it's really okay to say to somebody, are you considering hurting yourself? And a lot of the coaches were surprised by that because they feel like if you, you bring it up, then it might make them be more apt to, to, to commit suicide. But they say that it finds that when you, when you ask them, they're either gonna say, oh, no way, or they might be you know, silent and that might tell you a lot but it's like the first step to try to build rapport with that person. I, I didn't know that, um, that that would be a good strategy for most cases, I guess. And yeah, and that's part of what we're trying to help coaches understand. It, 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 it's called, it's a combination of awareness and uh, empathetic listening. Mm -hmm. But there's this concept of bystander intervention. So the bystander dilemma is that you see someone who is in need. So maybe they're at a party and they're being targeted and, 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 and they're inebriated. Or that they've kind of drifted off the map and they're withdrawing and, and they may be really, really sad or suffering inside. So the bystander effect is you kind of get that, but you don't intervene because you don't think that you should or you don't feel confident or you don't feel you have the training to or you feel that it may make things worse or that you might get hurt. Bystander training is an evidence-based approach where actually coaches and student athletes and others, they actually simulate situations and they learn how to engage. And in fact, I agree with that um, therapist that you, 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 you just mentioned uh, this story, that by learning how to engage, you actually problem solve. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you have to, feel comfortable with learning how to engage. So this is something that's really important for coaches to understand. They can't just say this is someone else's problem because mm -hmm. they're often on the front line and actually the data are very clear. Coaches have a more profound influence on student athletes than any other person. Mm -hmm. So the coaches need to understand what to do. Yeah, and you know, I think when you and I first met via email, we were talking about you know, my passion and belief that all coaches should be trained and certified, not just in mental health issues, which is a huge issue, but trained in all aspects of being a coach. You know, I, I just, I don't get it because of what you just said, that if student athletes are our number one concern, why don't we invest in training the people who have the biggest impact on them? And we leave it to chance. And 
and it's not for me it's it's not just student athlete health and welfare which is really important don't get me wrong it should be our top priority it also is an issue for me around job satisfaction for coaches and right. you know how much are they enjoying their careers and how much pressure are they under to win and do they understand the people management leadership and self-awareness skills that are needed and i would really hope that at, and i know that they're voting on some things here this week on doing some baseline training for coaches you know um, and I, and that's a great start um, and hopefully keep moving in a direction where um, my dream is that coaches get a degree in coaching you know and right you know. so so here's the dilemma mm -hmm. if you look at the more than 200 countries that are part of the International Olympic Committee. The United States is one of the only countries in the world where to be a coach, all you have to do is hold up a shingle and say, I'm a coach. Mm -hmm. So that's the reality. We're one of the only countries that doesn't have a minister of sport. Mm -hmm. So that's the United States. The NCAA, what they have done, so uh, it began as a pilot through our Division II schools so they actually developed what's called D2 University. Mm -hmm. And that is including modules for coaching education. So the first two modules that were developed specific to health and safety were on uh, sexual violence prevention and on mental health. Mm -hmm. The Board of Governors endorsed this D2 University. And so I believe what you're going to see is that this pilot, which is already very well developed, mm -hmm is going to be the beginning of a credentialing program for coaches. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the NCA is not a certifying body for sports sciences and, and so forth, but I, I believe you're going to see the NCA working with the college coaches organizations with this D2 pilot as a shining example, and I think your dream is going to come true. Mm. That's great. That's great. Um, is there anything else that's going on that you would like to share with coaches that you, you know that you all are working on at the NCAA that you feel like they should know about? Well, it's sort of a uh, an offshoot of the NCAA. So in May, uh, fingers crossed, mm -hmm. in what's called the British Journal of Sports Medicine, there's going to be the first ever consensus paper on mental health in elite athletes. But elite athletes is also defined in this paper as a college athlete. Mm -hmm. And then there are gonna be a number of subspecialty papers and the ILC has made the same commitment as the NCAA. So they're gonna be rolling out a number of modules for coaches and increasing their awareness with mental health. So it's just not an American event. It's really happening across the country. The other thing, that coaches should know is that we created with the help of outside experts from around the country uh, an implementation toolkit and so a coach at any school really can ask have we used the implementation toolkit so that we're certain that the mental health best practices are completely integrated into athletics mm -hmm. So, because we did survey and we saw, yeah, people love the best practices, but the operationalization of it was sometimes it was, it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. And so we took that data and we actually rolled out a way to do it from A to Z. You know, this is when you put up the sticky notes, this is where you show the video. And 
Uh, this is when you have the round table. And, and so that really is happening right now as we speak. But coaches can and should engage if they haven't already with their athletic director, with their team physician, with the athletics health care administrator and say, hey, where are we with all of this and how can I become part of it? And if a coach, um, you mentioned the pillars that you know you all are emphasizing around sleep, concussions. I mean, I would imagine that you have developed resources for all of those pillars um, on your website. So if a coach yes. wants to research sleep deprivation a little bit more, you have resources on there for that as well. Yeah, so for the sleep, we actually had a summit. We just submitted our paper literally two weeks ago. So now we're working on the translational document. So that's going to be on our website, I would say, probably in three months. I know a lot of teams are experimenting with, you know, sleep monitors, like, you know, checking on the amount of sleep. And, and some of the athletes are don't like it because it feels like it's invading their privacy, you know, kind of thing. But, I mean, I know the coaches, they're, most of them are just wanting to – to help them, you know, and get more sleep and, and You know whatnot. how they could help them? Yeah. Eliminate 6 a.m. practices. Yeah, true. Because what's interesting is that in emerging adults, so individuals between the ages of 18 and 24, their circadian rhythms are such that naturally their melatonin, which allows the environment of sleep to take place, their melatonin peak doesn't happen until after 11 p.m. So you can't just do sleep in an emerging adult. You can't just say, yeah, just go to sleep at 9 because it doesn't work. So, you know, if kids are going to sleep really late and then they're waking up for 6 a.m. practices and, and then they have classes and they get sleep deprived and, you know, all sorts of things happen, including their performance goes down. Mm -hmm. And so, the injuries, right, you are talking about. Yeah. So coaches need to be aware of that. They have to foster that. I, you know, I have mixed feelings about wearing these bands and everything. I mean, I certainly don't wear one because mm -hmm. it kind of bugs me. But, you know, <laughs> for some people, they're driven that way, and that's how they operate. So. And there's um, been a lot more talk around, like, meditation and mindfulness and, you know, things like that to help. Um, do you have any thoughts or feelings on that, or do you see an increase of people using those different techniques to help athletes release some of that anxiety, maybe help with some of their sleep issues? Well, yes, and, 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 and so I always talk about mindfulness, broadly speaking, because mm -hmm. mindfulness doesn't mean that you have to have a mantra and that you're you know going into some sort of very particular meditative state. Mindfulness can mean that you're listening to music or that you're going for a walk and you're really aware of your footsteps and your breath. Mm -hmm. Or that you're just taking some sacred time and space where you're just alone mm -hmm. and you're letting yourself be. So there are all sorts of ways, but, but what they all accomplish is sort of a decompression and you're just removing yourself from the intensity of the workaday world, which includes the athletic world, and it's a way of recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's an important skill set for the athletes and the coaches. Right. You know, the coaches could definitely benefit from it. I mean, I know how much it's helped my life, like me personally, that I'm always talking to them about that that solitude time, you know, just, right. you know, that time where it, it's funny because to me that's where so much of my creativity comes mm -hmm. from is in that quiet time, in that solitude time, and innovation and 
you know, I, I just feel like they get on that, that gerbil thing and they just go, 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 go. I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses and they lose sight of their own quality time for themselves mm -hmm. and, and well, lose the other, their balance. The, the other important part of mindfulness is actually having fun. Mm -hmm. And that's with other people. But it's, you know, just to socialize. And so I think it's a balance. I think the solitude and the creativity, there's no question that that's really important. But also just kind of hanging out and, and you know, really mm -hmm. being with someone in a, mm -hmm. in a genuine manner. One of the, um, one of your pillars being sexual violence, um, one of the things that's kind of bothered me, and maybe you can clear this up for me if there's, uh, there is a procedure that I'm just not aware of, but I know that there are many coaches out there that are sexual predators. You know, they've, they've getting fired, and the universities, they want to just fire them and get them out of there without giving the university a black eye. And so the only real way to punish this particular coach is if the, the victim, you know, wants to file a lawsuit against their coach, you know? Right. And, and so for me, it bothers me that coaches, there's not a way for them to lose their license, first of all, um, in our country, and they just get passed around from one school to another school. Is there any kind of registered, registered database or something that you all keep of these sexual predators that are out there? And they're not just at the college level. You know, a lot of them <clears throat> hang out in the, you know, the club swimming and club, you know, all the different club sports as well. Right. Um, and, and so that, that aspect really, really bothers me because it's just not fair, you know. Right. So there's two things. So one is there actually the NCA uh, passed last year association-wide policy that the president, the athletic directors, and the Title IX coordinator all have to go through a certain protocol to assure that the reporting structure, so there are reporting structures when, when sexual violence occurs that must take place, and there's no bypass, and it's not something that is managed in athletics. It's something that is a university policy that's consistent with federal and state law. So that's one thing. But in reference to what you're just describing, and, and, and especially, you know, very particularly with the Larry Nassar case, mm -hmm. um, the, there used to be something called safe sport, which was part of the United States Olympic Committee. Mm -hmm. So that has spun away as an independent entity. It's now called the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. And they are actually congressionally mandated and authorized to uh, investigate and enforce all aspects of sexual violence. But it happens under the umbrella of the 50 national governing bodies that are signatories to the USOC. Mm -hmm. And that's a very well-prescribed mechanism. And then what happens, and, and, and actually the investigation, so they, it still has to be reported to the police and to the authorities, but SafeSport does its own investigation and then they have created a public database. Mm. Anyone can go to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, type in a coach's name, or you can look at all the coaches that are listed, and it's there. And that is also something, so we have communicated with our membership because the NCAA doesn't have that same database, but now the membership is aware of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport because you can have a, you know, say a potentially a coach who was 
in youth sport and, and was found guilty by safe sport for something that happened in hockey, but maybe is also on a college campus at a different level. So that's why we're bringing it all together and, and we're actually developing a collaborative relationship with safe sport. It's, you know, how that's going to ultimately evolve is uh, we'll see, but, but the discussions have been really quite good. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I'm an athletics director and I'm getting ready to hire a coach, I probably should check that database. It makes an awful lot of sense. sense. <laughs> okay, because I, I did not know about that, and that makes me feel better, you know, in that because it just seems like there is nothing keeping those coaches from getting another job. Right. And, and, you know, let's just not just talk about sexual abuse, um, which is awful. Let's talk about verbal, mental abuse, too. And, and I'm not really sure how we can you know, eliminate coaches that have that, you know, type of coaching method as well. Um, Because again, that feeds into anxiety, depression, you know, all these other pieces that we're talking about. What what do you, have you all had any discussions around how do we eliminate some of that in the coaching world? So two ways. One, safe sport goes beyond sexual violence and also with physical violence. But, you know, there's always a line drawn. So where, where is it? enough that it's reportable and where is it not but mm-hmm. it does go beyond uh, sexual violence and then um, with regard to an abusive atmosphere um, so that's something that within the mental health guidelines that's continuing to evolve so we first put out what the environment needs to be now the next step is trying to help ensure that that environment is created and then the next step after that is once that's the best practice and you, you actually will see that the uh, schools with autonomy, the five schools with autonomy, just passed uh, legislation that says that you have to have a mental health care practice on your campus that's consistent with this mental health best practices document. So now that the legislation is beginning, I think we're going to see an evolution of what happens when these best practices are not being followed. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet, mm-hmm. but you can see how that pathway is, is being created. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. That's good. All right, so what we have now is our rapid-fire questions. Okay. And these are just kind of fun questions about you personally. Like, uh, the number first one is, um, what is the best advice you've ever been given? I would say uh, the thing that has stuck with me more than anything else is there's uh, no such thing as a noble profession. There are only noble people. Mm, I like that. So the next one is, do you have a mantra you live by? Um, Well, my personal mantra is to live a life of passion and compassion. What is something unique most people don't know about you? Um, that I write poetry. That's cool. <laughs> Love to see one of those. Great leaders are blank. Visionaries and ethical. Great leaders know how to blank. See the connectedness of being and listen. Besides exercise and meditation, A healthy part of my daily ritual is 
I just assumed you did meditation. Maybe you don't. But besides exercise, what is a healthy part of your daily ritual? Yeah. And so meditation is part of it. So mm. um, music. Mm. What's your favorite kind of music? Are you like, so, like it all? Uh, yeah, it depends on the mood. So I love jazz and frequently listen to jazz, but also love chamber music. Mm. Um, but I also roll up my sleeves and um, I still... We'll put on Eat a Peach from the Allman Brothers and, and kick back. So, so I'm, I, I, I'll go in different directions. I love it. Well, we're, we're running a little music festival down in Gainesville in March. We'll have to invite you, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it later. Um, what is one piece of advice you'd give your 20-year-old self? Um, just always follow your dreams. What is most rewarding for you in your work? I, I think it's just being touched by this the phenomenal NCA membership. I mean, it's just have this wealth of people and all the member institutions that, you know, there's not been one college I visited where I would not have said to my children who are now all finished with college that this would be a great place for you to go. Wow. So that's it's just really phenomenal to experience that. That's great. Um, one of my favorite books is? Well, my favorite, well, it kind of goes in two directions. My favorite is Parable of the Beast. Mm. Um, Never heard that one. Yeah, by uh, John Bleibtraub. So it's like, I was written in the 60s, and it's like, the guy's like 30 years ahead of his time. But it basically is a book on evolutionary biology where he looks at everything from the snail to the whale to the human being, and he actually predicts in that book what humans must have from a neurohormonal point of view, and this was before the neurohormonal circuitry was even discovered. Mm -hmm. But it's also like really cool. You know, he talks about how, you know, how can like birds just fly mm -hmm. across the planet? And, and so what is their nervous system like? So that's like really a cool book, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, but, and then, you know, my favorite fiction book is Crime and Punishment mm -hmm. by Dostoevsky, just cause, you know, you get to the essence of how rational thought is really pretty limiting in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Do you listen to podcasts? Not really. Uh, the only podcasts I listen to are uh, The Daily, mm -hmm. you know, The New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's like, I mean, so any chance I get, I try to begin my day listening to that because it's kind of like a 20-minute deep dive into a current story, and mm -hmm. you just learn so much. But, yeah, I'm not really other Does than Does the NCA have a podcast? Yeah, so we actually do. Jack Ford mm -hmm. um, has, uh, so I've even been interviewed for one, and, and so he has a lot of really interesting um, podcasts as well. In fact, I'm sure he created a few during this convention with I'm sure um, he did, yeah. interviewing athletes and so forth. Um. You do travel a lot, so what's one of the, your favorite places that you've been in your travels? So the most interesting, um, yeah, I do travel a lot with my family, too. When we took a family trip to uh, Ivory Coast, and um, which is in Western Africa, which is uh, where my wife grew up in, um, in Benin, mm -hmm. uh, not in Benin, in, in Guinea, and then um, Ivory Coast. Mm. So we went back, we visited her roots, but then we went, to the northern part of Ivory Coast and Corrigal, and um, it was all prearranged, and I got to spend a day with the medicine man. 
Wow. And um, hashtag it was, jealous. It was, it was really <laughs> phenomenal. He, um, I was there was someone who had left their village. Very few do who who uh, learned how to speak French, and I I speak French, and so he was translating for us. And we got to a point where we were talking about chronic pain, and and we got lost in translation. He couldn't understand it. Mm. He said that must be a Western phenomenon because in my village and in my father's village, my grandfather's village, if someone gets hurt, you take care of the injury, but why would they have pain after that? And so it just was really very interesting. It actually became a, uh, uh, in, in, in a preface for, for a book I wrote. I, I, I talked about that experience. And, and, and the other cool thing, it was um, at the end of the visit, and we really kind of bonded, and he took me to his garden. And he gave me these leaves from a plant. He, he said, there's a, there's a relatively recent illness which has come into my community, uh, you know, which is asthma. And he thought it was because of what was happening around his community. And he found this plant, and, 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 and he said, I want to give this to you. And, and I said, you know, but I don't have asthma. He said, yes, but if you take these leaves and you boil them, and you make tea from them, and then you drink the tea, you will become very, very happy. And, you know, so I thought about it, you know, and I, I, I actually, when I came back and, and, and discussed this with a colleague of mine who does traditional Chinese medicine, he said, well, God, Brian, that makes like so much sense because in, in traditional Chinese medicine, asthma is considered the sadness and the weeping of the lungs. And so, you know, he gave you, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I never tried it because I, I was afraid of becoming ill and I, I didn't want to bring it across the border and get busted for, you know, maybe mm -hmm. it, you know, it was a coca leaf or something, who knows what. But so That's I, awesome. you know, but it, was a, it was a great story. That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, what, what are three words you hope people use to describe your legacy? Um, forward thinking, uh, compassionate, and ethical. Great. Well, Brian, I really appreciate um, you taking time to talk to me, and it sounds like you're doing some really wonderful things um, at the NCAA to help support coaches in your nine pillars, and um, and for you know right now the hottest topic for us is in the mental health issue. Um, so thank you for all your good work. We really do appreciate it. I appreciate the time and opportunity and, and hope this is helpful to, to our great coaches. Hi coaches. Thank you so much for joining us on this Coaches on the Rise episode. There's a few little things that we'd really like to ask you to do for us that might seem little, but they're huge for True North Sports. First, if you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe, and we'd really like to hear what you have to say about our podcast by writing a short review. The second thing is, please share our podcast with other coaching colleagues that you have. And the third thing is, join us on social media. Follow the different programs, um, things that we're offering through True North Sports for all coaches of all sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and until next month, Keep shining bright, coaches.